Inside Northwest Sports, Episode 2, recorded January 22nd, 2016, is made possible by listeners like you. Visit patreon.com forward slash Inside Northwest Sports to contribute. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Kai Fuller. Today, I'm joined by William Shute, former NCAA compliance professional. Mason Hawthorne returns from last week to continue our discussion on the Huskies. And Troy Oppie, Idaho Press Club's 2013 top sports broadcaster, joins us to talk about Boise State. But first, a roundtable discussion about UW basketball, the 2016 NCAA convention, and of course, the Seahawks loss Sunday at the Panthers. Troy. What the heck happened Sunday? <laughs> well, the Seahawks got uh, smashed in the trenches. Uh, I was not uh, personally watching the game. The uh, the first run play that, of course, goes for 59 yards, you saw two guys slip on the back end. Um, and who knows what could have happened if they'd worn the appropriate cleats out of the gates instead of changing them uh, through the first couple of series. That field was in such bad shape. But you really you can't blame it on that. They got smashed. Uh, on both the offensive and defensive lines that entire first half. And that was that was the story of the game. Seattle couldn't run the football. They weren't giving up big plays on defense, but they uh, they were giving up, uh, I think the average was somewhere between uh, four and five yards uh, a play, and that's just too deep of a hole. Mason? Yeah, that was too deep of a hole. I, I think anyone who watched that game uh, knows that, you know, you spot the other team that many points. That's basically a final score on their end at, at one half. Um, and it is too bad. It isn't too bad. It's too bad we didn't play like we did in the second half in the first half. But I almost feel like had it been closer, they would have had to fill in the gas a little bit more on the Panthers' end. But it had been a different game altogether. But, uh, you know, we didn't turn the ball over in the second half. And I think we talked about before that turnovers would be a big deal. We never got, we never got that big defensive play where we got the ball from them in a turnover situation. And had that happen just once, uh, I think you maybe see a different outcome. Yeah. And uh, what would you say are the keys going into the offseason? Well, I think it's really weird because we can do, I can see two things happening. I can see a total uh, departure from some guys that we've really come to uh, expect and, and take for granted. Uh, you know, they've been talking about the cutting of Marshawn Lynch. I've heard things about potentially cutting Cam Chancellor to save cap room. I'm personally against both those things, but I can see from a business end either of those things happening, uh, which is really strange. Uh, we've got a great nucleus regardless who they bring back. The people on the team already are competitive group, but um, you know the, the city has really rallied around some some key guys that could, could not be here next year. So I personally would like to see them just focus on the guys that you know uh, have upside. I think Bruce Irvin would be a big guy to bring back. I think you can get Kurtz for a moderately reasonable price as a third receiver. Uh, John Ryan to me is a no-brainer. And then um, and then maybe maybe you go ahead and take the loss and knowing that we might not be able to match with people off for Okun and Tweezy might even get a little higher than we are, we're comfortable with. So I, I, I think we bring back a lot of different players. I think I think we have a different looking team next year. Just that's my that's my fear. Yeah, Trey, what do you think? Yeah, it is going to be a lot different, and I agree that Bruce Irvin is probably the biggest uh, name free agent that uh, that they're going to have to re-sign. And bringing John Ryan back is a no-brainer. Um, and he'll come. You know, he wants to play in Seattle. 
Um, I, I've never been sold on Jermaine Curse, um, even as a Husky. I grew up a Husky fan. I'm a huge Seahawks fan, but he's never been. He's never grabbed me, um, and so I'm kind of I'm I'm lukewarm on what they do with Curse. They're going to have to pay attention in the draft, and they're going to have to take another skill guy, uh, wide receiver perhaps. And they're even before they get there, they're going to have to do something on the offensive line. And I'm not uh, well enough versed to know. I know there are so many underclassmen declaring in the draft. 96, I think, uh, is what I saw earlier today. That that suggests to me kind of a soft overall draft class. And I don't know yep. where where the stronger portions are within that, but uh, they're going to have to do something up front on the offensive line through the draft because I don't think they can pay anybody. Uh, on the free agent market. Moving on to the NCAA convention that took place last week in San Antonio. Last year's convention was a blockbuster. This year, they put off major decisions. What are the unresolved issues coming out of this year's convention? Yeah, so last year there was the uh, massive undercurrent of a couple of lawsuits, the O'Bannon lawsuit and the Kessler lawsuit. And uh, so the NCAA pretty much I guess, kowtowed to these 65, you know, big schools and allowed them to make all the power for all the other schools, which they referred to as autonomy. And uh, so they increased the scholarship amount for uh, football and basketball players, so-called cost of attendance stipend. They also, you know, uh, disallowed coaches from cutting players based on solely athletic reasons, and they allowed the best athletes to borrow against their future earnings. And one of the most significant things uh, that went into this year's convention was NCAA compliance officers' pretty much worst nightmare, which is countable athletic-related activities, which most people call the 20-hour rule. Uh, So this convention uh, was the first NCAA convention where a nominal number of athletes were were basically given voting power, uh, and a lot of them wanted to tackle this issue, obviously, Uh, and also the uh, out-of-season or – in quotation marks, voluntary workouts, but the NCA, I guess in typical fashion, tabled the uh, this issue, and uh, they actually passed a resolution to create new proposals on this topic, and obviously a lot of the athletes were um, less than happy. Uh, also, the Pac-12, um, they tabled their proposal, which would have allowed uh, athletes to uh, utilize their name and image uh, to advertise their own businesses, non-athletic businesses. And uh, the bottom line with all this stuff is basically, uh, with regards to passing legislation at NCAA conventions, historically, the NCAA only acts when faced with litigation. (laughs) So uh, they did pass a couple of uh, things. They passed high school baseball players are now allowed to uh, retain the services of agents. Uh, Basketball athletes can enter the NBA draft multiple times. Uh, under certain conditions without it affecting their eligibility. And uh, they also allowed um, uh, conference championships. And actually just recently, it wasn't a convention item, but the NCAA significantly just uh, approved the sale of alcohol at the College World Series and the softball championships, which is rather significant based on their historical stance on uh, alcohol. Troy, you had some thoughts on the convention as it relates to Northwest schools? Yeah, and, and in the state of Idaho in particular, uh, you look at the University of Idaho that has, has monumental struggles keeping a football program competitive and in the black at the FBS level. And their their alumni base is basically split you know, between 
the half that want to see the football team compete in the bowl subdivision and the half that are just saying, you know, this isn't fun anymore. Let's go back to the big sky and the FCS level. Let's, you know, balance the books, be competitive and essentially start over. Um, where they are now playing in the Sun Belt, you know, you're taking four or five trips across the country, across three time zones in some cases, and making the other teams do the same when they have to go to Moscow to play, which is not an easy place to get to, especially late in the season. And the move to allow conferences in the Power Five to have championship games um, and not need a certain number of teams in the conference to do that where this championship game is what everybody's striving for. It's one more game. It's on TV, you know, get those dollars for the conference sort of thing. If they don't have to add another team to dilute the pool uh, for the split, um, and especially if you can cut out some of that travel for, for teams in the Sun Belt flying up to Moscow, I think Idaho's days in the Sun Belt conference are limited. And if they lose that connection, then nobody's going to take them. The Mountain West doesn't want Idaho – um, I can't see any other conference extending an olive branch uh, for them either. And that would put them back to where they were a year ago, which was independent. And that was a complete scheduling mess. And, um, and beyond that, a, a complete budget mess for them as well. And I, I don't see that being uh, sustainable for that program at all. And on the flip side, uh, well, not even the flip side, but in a different story, um, is BYU. There's a lot of BYU fans around here, and there's a lot of consternation among them that uh, their door into the Big 12 and into a Power 5 conference just got shut, because now there's no reason for the Big 12 to expand and potentially add a team like BYU, which Cougar fans certainly thought they were high on that conference's list should the conference have to expand. And that means BYU is staying independent, and that's I think long-term that's probably going to be a struggle for them, both financially and from a competitive standpoint too. 28,000 collegiate athletes were polled. Majority of them regret specializing in a sport too early. Thoughts? Yeah. Um, my thought is that it definitely won't slow down. It'll only increase because the kids aren't the ones specializing. It's the parents and the adults specializing. Um, the parents are chasing the fantasy of the elusive full-ride NCAA scholarship. It's the reason why they're pushing these kids, uh, their kids into specialization. And as someone who's worked in the field extensively, uh, I can emphatically tell you that it almost never occurs. Uh, and the stats don't lie on this. Like uh, 100,000, or I'm sorry, half a million high school basketball players are playing right now, and approximately 1% will get a chance to play Division One basketball. Uh, same thing with football. There's over a million high school football players right now. And give or take two to three percent will get a chance to play division one. And um, it's the adults uh, who aren't parents that are getting wealthy off of this kind of pipe dream that they're marketing that they can get you a full scholarship with uh, traveling leaves and also the um, abundance of recruiting websites out there. Um, AAU is obviously the worst, but hockey and uh, soccer are pretty bad right now. And just look, uh, you know, Nike just kind of, uh, let uh, the media know that they're creating a seven-on-seven football league that's going to be nationwide. And uh, uh, in the words of CBS's Dennis Dodd, he basically said, uh, paraphrase, that he's taking, they're taking an off-season, uh, you know, something that the athletes use in the off-season to kind of sharpen their skills 
and he turned to, they're turning it into a contrived sport, um, you know, sponsored by all these mega companies and everything. And so, you know, and plus the fact that kids who specialize, you know, their overuse injuries are, I mean, that's something like 70% more than kids that don't specialize. And I just read yesterday, actually, that 70% of kids that leave, they leave sports by the age of 13 because of parental pressure. So, you know, I, I don't see it stopping anytime soon. Yeah, Mason, do you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, uh, reiterating too, uh, you know, one of the big, I think it's kind of a two-prong issue, maybe even three, but the first prong, uh, you know, William nailed, which is the parents uh, get told by, you know, very charismatic kind of quasi-coaches, you know, AAU select team coaches that, hey, you know, little Jimmy has a great jump shot. If he works with us, we can get it. You know, there's, I've seen a lot of those pitches um, and, uh, that's certainly a part of it. But the other part of it that I think is, is frustrating is um, because of the amount of available leagues, it really has uh, sapped a good deal of, of high school athletics. I, I, I'm thinking I'm primarily from basketball. I'm sure it's other sports too, but I definitely saw it firsthand. Um, you know, I've done a lot of scouting, and the number of high school coaches that I scout for have told me in confidence that they hate having kids who are coming from AAU and select teams because they have to unteach them all of the bad habits they learn from that. So uh, those coaches feed the college coaches. The college coaches actually prefer seeing a guy that is shown the capability of playing multiple sports. Uh, you know, I worked pretty closely with a, a UW scout in the 90s who scouted for football, and he said that if an offensive lineman also wrestled or you know threw discus or was a volleyball player, but that was favorable recruiting information for whatever colleges, or you always had those receivers that also ran track, or any quarterback that showed uh, a position of, of leadership in another sport like point guard or maybe he was a pitcher. Those things were all pieces of information that were used. And so it's sort of this lie, because playing all year and specializing in one sport doesn't really give you an advantage over other players who play all four sports or even two or whatever. Because the best players are going to be the ones who make it to college anyways, regardless if they only played part of a year. I mean, ask Bo Jackson or Deion Sanders if it hurts their chances to play one sport in high school or not. You know, they, clearly, the cream will rise to the top regardless. And the other thing I think is, um, is a little bit frustrating is because, because a couple of kids have excelled at it, and you see these kids in these tournaments. I'm actually scouting a tournament this weekend. Um, that tournament culture has become... Uh, it's actually transcendent. It's outside the parental realm. I mean, the parents are happy to throw the money the way of certain situations, but I know a number of kids who are quote-unquote scholarship on these teams because their skill set is good enough that they are kind of, they're basically carried the, the AAU team and then the kids who parents need to pay, pay for it. Uh, the kids have a pressure to feel like that they're not playing on one of these teams that they're doing uh, themselves a disservice or they're not as, uh, I don't know, um, they're not doing what they need to do to, you know, to, to propel their career. And so I, I see more and more kids coming up talking about debating whether to play for the high school team or to play for the AAU teams. And that's, that's sad, too, that the, the culture within the high school academics or athletics has changed, at least in basketball, uh, to go away from playing for a school uh, team. And that's too bad. Yeah, and actually, uh, if I could just add one thing, most coaches right now that I know – 
they focus more on the AAU. Um, high school basketball has become less and less important, um, yep. at least regarding NCAA Division One right now. It's a complete cesspool, and it's all because of the shoe contracts. And what happens is a lot of these kids, when they hit an Adidas or a Nike or an Under Armour uh, AAU team, they go to one of those schools. And what used to be kind of uh, you know a hit and miss thing, it's now becoming commonplace. And yep. so that is like a huge issue with regards to specialization. And the NCAA has a lot of rules with regards to that. Um, coaches used to, teams used to basically hire AAU coaches and assistant coaches to get a recruit. And they're starting yep. to change the legislation on that, but it's actually going back. Um, the AAU would start to have a lot more uh, uh, importance. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, I don't know. And I think the other thing about that is um, until you see some sort of cultural shift away from it, I mean, it has to, something has to happen um, that dissuades the culture. And right now it's being, like you said, it's kind of being encouraged and doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And I imagine it's the same with other sports. I don't see it outside of basketball, but um, it certainly was not a thing when I played and it wasn't a thing when, in my early coaching. But it's certainly a thing now that is, uh, you know, that gets factored into every single kid that comes in any program that I'm related to. Last week's episode featured a discussion on why Lorenzo Romar's job should be safe. William, you couldn't disagree more. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I debate this with uh, friends all the time. Being an East Coaster, uh, I do have a little bit of bias, but uh, I do know he's a great recruiter. There's no debate about that. But my answer to that all the time is college basketball is about winning, not recruiting. And if we're going to focus on recruiting, uh, just look at the numbers. He has a top 40 recruiting budget to work with uh, nationwide. He's got one of the highest increases in recruiting budgets for the last uh, for the amount of numbers that were uh, provided. I think it was 2009 to 2013. I mean, the third highest paid public employee in the state. He's got Seattle, which is like a hotbed of recruiting in his backyard. Uh, you know, look at his record, though. If you want to compare, uh, UConn has basically an identical recruiting budget, and they have four times the NCAA tournament wins. Wisconsin spent half what Romar uh, did, and they have three times the NCAA tourney wins. And just as far as his record goes, uh, you know, they're 13-5 and five right now. They're in first place in the Pac-12, yet they're 45th in the RPI, 66th in Sagarin, and I think 88th in Kenpom, which shows that his wins are pretty weak. They're actually being outscored in conference play. And even though they have a great offense, I think they're top 10 in offense. They have the second worst defense in the nation of any major college, and I think they're like 310 out of the entire uh, nation as far as defense. So, And the bottom line with him is, He's been coaching for 19 years at three different schools. He's made the tourney only seven times and none in the last four years. And there's no way they're going to meet at-large bid this year. So he has to win the Pac-12. Mason, your thoughts on that? Well, I wouldn't know if I'd go as far as to say there's no way they get an at-large bid. Uh, I mean, you still can put a 20-plus uh, season together. Actually, they probably will put a 20-plus season together. But uh, you probably don't have to even go all the way as far as saying that they would have to win the Pac-12 tournament. They, if they can just be sitting in the top two spots in Pac-12 record and have a decent tournament favoring, uh, they could get one of those at-large bits of 10 or 13, one of those play-ins or whatever. But that, but that's actually would be, this is kind of my, this is actually 
was part of my point of last week. It's not so much that I think we should be considered to be an elite team, nor do I feel like Lorenzo Romar is in a position where you can refer to him as an elite coach, having not won a, you know, a championship or even gone to a Final Four. But the fact that we are consistently labeled, you know, 11th preseason kind of, you were talking about, you're talking about whether or not they're going to make it as an at-large bid. You know, three weeks ago, people were talking about us finishing 11th out of 12 in the Pac-12. And that, to me, that's where the disrespect, I think, comes in. Um, the recruiting, you, you, can't, you can't just say these kids are going to fall in your lap because they're in your backyard. Because we have to out-compete with, with, with Gonzaga, which pulled a lot of in-state recruits. And for many of the years leading up to Bromar coming in here, a lot of our, uh, our, in, our in-states went out of state. Uh, I played with guys from you know, the Canton Federal Way area. They didn't even mention UW when they went to Arizona. Uh, you know, there, there's just, there was nothing pulling kids to stay here with the exception of the Marv Harshman years, which I was a young man for. But then there was a massive gap between, I think, 86-ish and whenever Bob Bender retired, which would have been like 2002, where we didn't really do anything uh, recruiting-wise and then, of course, recruiting, I think, is epiphenomenal to your record. If you don't have the athletes on the floor, you're not going to win the game. Uh, so I, the other thing I would say is, yeah, the last four years have been disappointing. But there's been some other things. And I think coaching, yes, coaching is about whether or not you get the wins and losses in place. But I think coaching is also about creating a culture and representing an, an, an academy in a certain way or a, a university in a certain way that draws the type of players that you want to get. And, you know, they were dealt a couple of tough blows. Most recently, last year, you know, you had Gennard Giroux go out in the first couple games, and then you had Sean Kemp Jr. dealing with Graves' disease. And then Robert Upshaw, out of nowhere, you know, you put your undefeated through 10-plus games, and then they, they had the drug offense. So right, right away, you went from being three deep at the forward to zero deep at forward. And, you know, so there are other things at play other than X's and O's and how he calls the game. Uh, his recruiting is unquestionable. And the fact that we continue to get guys from here, but also two of the bigger recruits in this, this year, this class, are guys that are Georgia-California dudes. And I just don't know if you could bring a guy in here unless he was from one of those elite teams like a Wisconsin or UConn, a coach with a name that uh, was equated to going to Final Fours. I don't know who you'd bring in here that'd be able to get the in-state recruits that Romar gets and also reach out and grab these other guys. I I kind of think that's the part where if we were to lose him, we would notice that difference immediately. Um, and, and, with, and with that, I, w- I would say I don't think he's untouchable. I mean, I think if we were to m- miss this tournament this year uh, and then also next year having Kennedy's freshmen then having had a year under the belt, you could have used as their freshman excuse. If next year was losing season, then I would start saying, yeah, you know, obviously we've got to consider some people. But that list would have to only include guys whose names we already all know. I don't think you bring up some up-and-coming guy or some Division II coach to see what he can do. Uh, I think a lot of it really comes down to situationally, he hasn't been on the match what he did the first 10 years, those six trips in the first 10 years. Matter of fact, I think we've only gone 16 times ever, so the fact that he pretty much has half of those in a decade when the other half came from the 90 years before him, I think that, that to me that – he probably deserves a little bit of rope, but not so much rope that you have him stick around for six or seven more years of mediocrity, but enough so that you can say other things factored in to these last three seasons of disappointment. Um, I guess that's what I would say there. I, I think that Romar basically represents the university very well, and he's handled some of the, uh, some of the hardships 
pretty pretty well too. Even how he handled the upshot situation or how he handled the Overton situation, I just think there's a level of class that exudes him that we would sorely miss if we replaced him prematurely. Kai, let me let me let me jump on this. Well, this is just a weird analogy. I, I'm I'm kind of cold on Romar. I want to see what he does with this young group, um, you know, over another year. But uh, but he's on a really short leash. So this is a weird analogy, but go with me. So th- those those two guys that train the white tigers, right? They're really good at bringing in the best tigers, the prettiest looking tigers in the world. But it only works until one of those tigers mauls the guy. If they can't control the tigers and make them do what they want, it doesn't matter how good those tigers look. It's a weird analogy, but it's kind of how I feel about Romar. Yeah, he's a great recruiter, but he's not going to outcoach half, if not two-thirds of the other teams in the Pac-12. And he's not going to out-scheme anybody. That's just not his style. He can wind these guys up and let them go. And, yeah, you're going to get a dozen wins on athleticism alone every year. But he can't – I'm not convinced he can take the team across that next hurdle. But we'll see. He's got a really young team. Maybe maybe they figure it out. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about Robert Upshaw also. And, you know, like I remember they brought him in from Fresno State. He was uh, – you know, he got busted for drugs at Fresno State. And – you know, was, right. a lot of people were unhappy with him bringing bringing him here. And then uh, his assistant Raphael Chilius, uh, you know, doesn't have the best reputation in the NCAA. Um, so, uh, you know, bringing him, uh, I I don't know if they brought him in with Cameron Dollar last. I'm not I'm not familiar with when they brought him in, but I know his name uh, just in circles. Uh, you know, in college basketball, doesn't have the best reputation. So, but he was brought in there to recruit, and um, you know if you're brought in to recruit, you're getting all this money and you're not winning, uh, you know, what's the point? Yeah, I would have to say that one thing I would patently disagree with is that, that, that you're saying that the coaches, that the role of developing talent isn't in the coach's repertoire. And I feel like with the college, it certainly is, especially when you're talking about freshmen. And again, we're in the, the era of the one and done. So you're seeing successful teams just have a guy for one year. But, I mean, ask any one of those guys that stayed. They all benefited from staying because of the developmental aspect of the coaching. I feel like that's that second job. I mean, winning games, developing players, recruiting players, those are the three jobs of a college coach if you're trying to build build and stay with the building, you know, with what you've built. Um, and, I, and I do sort of think that there was a hiccup there because he came in the first couple of years were so impressive and in the Brandon Roy and Nate Roberts teams, and then we kind of got burnt by some uh, – we got burnt in the middle there by the 3D commits that would have been a different story, I think, right now in general because we would have known. We would have known what he was able to do with having two five-star recruits at the same time playing the uh, – you know, if we had had the Terrence Jones, Enos Cantor team that we should have had. So, I don't know. I think you're right about this being a young team, and we'll, we'll see what he does with it because this is a lot of talent. And if they stay, and I kind of suggest, I would suggest that they probably will because no one's really one and done kind of good. Uh, next year would really be the test of whether or not he can do it with this much. You know, if he has he has the talent to win the games now, so the X's and O's things would play out. But I would say uh, let's watch and see. That's what I would say. Yeah, one and done actually brings less value to the university. Um, yes. In theory, it should bring more because you think that it would bring players in. Oh, look, he developed an NBA player. But those one and done players 
are just picking a place to play because they know oh, they know. can make it the pros out of high school. And, you know, poll 100 Division One athletic directors, 99 will tell you the role of a basketball coach is to win. I mean, it's a fact of life. It's not to develop. Graduation rates sound good, but graduation rates have been static for 15 years. They're pretty much the same at every school. And, uh, you know, it's to win games. And I just don't think this would happen at any other major conference. And he's kind of lucky that he's in the Pac-12, and he's even luckier than he's in Seattle. All right. We'll be back with Troy Oppie to talk Boise State. Here at Inside Northwest Sports, we want to bring you unique perspectives, in-depth coverage, and an alternative to mainstream sports talk radio. But we can't do it without your support. Visit patreon.com forward slash inside Northwest Sports to find out how you can contribute. We welcome back Troy Oppie to discuss Boise State football, basketball, other things Idaho-related. Troy, what's going on? Uh, well, you know, down here in Boise, uh, the blue and orange definitely control the town. This is a blue turf town through and through. And uh, people are also enjoying some success of the basketball team over the last couple of years um, with a uh, former Gonzaga assistant at the helm now in his uh, fifth year. Leon Rice and, and doing big things on the basketball floor as well. So it's, uh, it's definitely all about Bronco sports down here. If you're talking to, uh, to college sports fans, they, they can't get enough of it, man. Sure. So there's been some coaching turnover in terms of uh, Boise state football. Yeah. The football team has turned over both its offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator um, this year. Uh, Eli Drinkwitz, uh, headed east to uh, to North Carolina State in a lateral move. And just earlier this week, um, the defensive coordinator made a lateral move to that same job at uh, the University of Arizona. And both those guys are going to do fine. Um, it, the, the defensive coordinator move was a little surprising. Um, and that was, uh, that was Yates that, that jumped. He's been a guy who's been around. He played at Boise State, been around Boise State for a long time. Not particularly pleased um, when he got passed over for the defensive coordinator promotion under Chris Peterson uh, going on now four years ago um, and ended up leaving the program for a handful of years, um, was with Harson, I believe, down in uh, – um, oh, where was Harson coaching? I'm just drawing a blank. But was with Harson at, at his, his previous stop and came back with him to Boise State a couple of years ago. So to have both those guys leave, and this is on the heels of last year, Mike Sanford jumping ship after one year as offensive coordinator and now is in the same spot at Notre Dame, um, that is a lot of high-level turnover on that coaching staff. And that has drawn a, a pretty um, – a lot of raised eyebrows around here, especially when you start to factor in um, some recruiting flip-flops, some guys that really didn't work out. And when I say didn't work out, I mean got thrown off the team um, because they were arrested for doing things. Um, a couple of top-line players did not even make the trip to the bowl game because of team rules violations. That didn't end up hurting Boise State in its bowl game, but it's still something to be concerned about. And all this really kind of put together in a nice, neat 
little uh, 6,000 word package by the longtime football beat writer for the Idaho Statesman here named Chad Kripe, who wrote this kind of inflammatory, uh, some think, story on his way out. He's no longer going to be the beat writer down here. And so that that was really his last act as, as beat writer. Now he's gone off to a different position at the newspaper here. And, and here you go. What's up with Boise State? So I think there's a lot to be concerned about um, in seeing how everything shakes out. And especially on the offensive side, you've got a, a school that is so widely known for their offense. And when they were doing things well, yeah, the offense was rolling. But when they had that run, 2009-2010, they sent more than a handful of guys to the NFL off those teams. In fact, several are still playing uh, around the league, and um, that was a, a big key. But for a school that's known for its offense to, uh, I believe they would be now on their sixth offensive coordinator in seven years, and, and that's if head coach Brian Harson, who was the OC before, takes the job play calling again. They still haven't named a new OC. Um, you know, how, how does how does Mark Rippon deal with that, who had a tremendous year as a true freshman um, after uh, coming in the second game due to an injury um, to Ryan Finley? You know, all these things are, are big questions that, you know, they aren't necessarily going to be wrapped up and ready to go by the end of spring football. This is going to be a long-term process down here. So, anyway, that's a long answer to a short question, but um, – uh, but there are some things for, for Blue and Orange fans to be concerned about, for sure. Yes, is there a particular thing that's that's specific to Boise State that's making it particularly challenging to, to hold coaches? Well, I mean, anytime you have a, a program like Boise State that's been able to uh, achieve the level of both success and then the associated fame with that, that the program has, even going back to Dan Hawkins' um, and uh, the new coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who was uh, who was a one-year head coach here at Boise State before jumping for greener pastures um, in the 90s. You know, anytime that happens at a small school with a limited budget, you know there is the threat of you know a guy leaving for a better opportunity. Uh, Marcel Yates doubled his salary. He got a $200,000 raise in a lateral move to the University of Arizona. Those are just the economics of where Boise State falls in the pecking order of college football. There's not a lot they can do about that. They've expanded their stadium so many times. They've done a lot of nice things to attract recruits here and hold coaches here. But nobody did a better job of that than Chris Peterson, who was really comfortable here and didn't feel the need to jump for money. He was happy with his family here. His kids were, were good in school here. He liked that. And he didn't leave for Washington until he really felt, you know, it's time for a new challenge. I've done what I can do here, and let's go see what I can do elsewhere. It was never about the money. And he made a lot of concessions along the way, Chris Peterson did, in terms of shifting money from his own salary down to assistant coaches. Brian Harson is not yet in that same position. If he's shifting a lot of money out of his own pocket, you know, he's taking, he's not making nearly as much as Chris Peterson was. So that's a much greater hit for him. And that's not to say he's not a generous person and won't take that opportunity to do so, but it's just a different scenario. And so you have guys, a lot of young guys that, uh, that have been here and had success and they're really, they're using this as a launching pad. 
And that hasn't been, it's always been the threat of that, but it was fairly mitigated uh, when Peterson was here. And that was a, that was a very stable thing that recruits, recruits could point at and, uh, and it worked. And uh, finally, you had a quick little story for us about the blue turf. It's like the, the stories about the blue turf and television, like the number um, when ESPN first was doing games here in the late nineties and they brought the blue turf, you know, they were hiring freelance uh, camera shaders and the games looked terrible. None of the cameras looked right because the light would bounce off the turf funny. Yeah. And they had to fly their best guys in from New York to do it. And then they've changed turf three times. ESPN made them tear up brand new turf in 2010 because the glare off the width of the, of the blue turf blades, the glare off of it was so bad that ESPN says, you need to fix this or we are going to seriously look at our, our broadcast schedule and reducing your time on it. And they did. And Boise State went back to Field Turf and said, uh-uh, this isn't working. And Field Turf came in, rolled it up, and laid down new turf before, uh, before 2012, I think. Thanks to my guests, Troy Oppie, William Shute, and Mason Hawthorne. Join us next week for an in-depth look at soccer sensation Jordan Morris, who recently passed up an offer from a major German club to sign with Sounders FC. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and your favorite podcast app. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.